Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stronger, Smarter, Together. I'm Ann Stevenson, your City Council candidate for Ward O'Dayman. Today, we're talking about a significant safety issue in our community, as well as the steps we can take to ensure every Edmontonian feels secure. Safety is something that's easy to take for granted. When it's present, we're able to move through our daily lives without too much worry. When we leave the house, we only have to think about whether we have our phones and our keys and if we're dressed for the weather. Or when we answer the phone, we only have to wonder if it might be a telemarketer with an inconvenient request. But for too many in our community, these simple acts of leaving the house or answering the phone currently come with significant stress. I'm grateful to be joined by an exceptional panel of community advocates, including Gurpreet Bolina, Haika Chima, Sharif Haji, and Raja Magay, to talk more about safety in our city. So for those who may not be aware, I'm wondering if you all could share some information about some of the harassment and attacks that have been happening in our community lately. Yeah, I guess I can start then. Um, you know, in the recent months, um, at the start of even the pandemic, we've had a lot of attacks on racialized women um, in Edmonton, particularly Black Muslim women. And the, the violence of those attacks has just gotten worse by each attack that has happened, whether that's at a bus station um, or even in their own community taking a walk. And I think there it's it's been very concerning for all Edmontonians, but particularly racialized women and their own safety um, in, in the city. And everyone is trying to wonder what it is it particularly about Edmonton where all these attacks are occurring. So there's a very, um, um, yeah, there is a safety concern uh, for racialized women on our streets who are just living their life and um, don't feel safe in the city. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to imagine uh, that that level of fear of, as you say, just sort of living your daily life with that sort of threat hanging over you. And Gurpreet, I know, I know that there's been some other forms of harassment happening lately as well. Yeah. For the past couple of months, one of our uh, gordoras in Millwood, Singsapa Gordora, was the target of harassing phone calls, um, deliveries of meat, um, things like that. And the phone calls would probably get to, on average, I think we calculated it to be like 30 a day, um, specifically to Punjabi-speaking senior members of the gordora. Um, and the phone calls would be basically a variety of things whether it's like anti-sex sentiments racial slurs things like that and yeah it was a ordeal that lasted um a couple of months from march to i believe like the last recorded phone calls we have is august so a super super long time um and it, it really highlighted gaps in the reporting processes and how inaccessible it is but yeah it was definitely a difficult time because when the law has a certain threshold to like what can be charged it's difficult that feeling that you have to wait until something gets that bad um is was definitely very very hard for members of our community to understand and 
it just shows that there's definitely work that needs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. And you raise a really great point. So not only do a lot of these stories not make it into the news, uh, we also know that they don't get reported at all. I mean, there are some very good reasons uh, why that that's the case. Um, I'm wondering if, if anyone wanted to jump in on that uh, question about, uh, you know, what are some of the barriers to reporting? I'll start off just by saying that, first off, there's, you know, kind of that mental barrier when you're first faced with a hate crime, thinking about what am I going to do next? Do I report it? What's that process going to look like for me? Um, because essentially I'm going to have to retell this trauma of something that just happened to me um, that has very much shaken me to my core. But it's not an easy process to report. And when you're recounting these stories to people in positions of power, they have the power to believe you or not. Um, and then so it's really up to them about what the next steps are in terms of reporting. Um, and a lot of reporting when it comes to hate crimes, like Gurpreet mentioned, it's a lot of like waiting and seeing if something else happens again. Um, it's a very reactive approach to it rather than proactive. Yeah, I'll jump in here from... Uh, there is an, an, an element of vulnerability that plays out there. So if you use an example, if I am a mother of, let's say, three, a single mother of three, um, I have language issues, it's a new land to me, um, I look different, I dress differently. So in terms of reporting, if I report, what does that mean to me? That in itself is a period that stops someone to report. From the practicality perspective, if, if I am the only breadwinner, would I spend time to report on, 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 on the incident and go to the state police station? They will ask me to write a report. I'll spend time there. There will be follow-ups that I have to do. Do I have that time? And then I have to make the hard choices, which is like, you know what? Yeah, I'll just try to continue to live my life. So that those are some things that um, uh, kind of impact the reporting. For those who are able to, in terms of capacities, or they can write the report and all those kind of things, one thing. But but these are some other vulnerability aspects that are in play that mm -hmm. somebody has to take into consideration. Well, well, yeah. I mean, I think I think you know you've you've flagged those uh, you know the mental and emotional barriers, and then it also seems you know I've heard that there's also a barrier in the sense that you know there's no assured outcome. Like there's there's often uh, you know after getting through all those other barriers, you might end up with having absolutely no action taken. Which, which I, I think would also be a huge, a huge barrier. None of us want to invest time and, and emotional energy into something when, when we've seen time and time again that it doesn't, uh, doesn't lead to any change. What are some, what are some alternative approaches? Well, I mean, I guess maybe a first question I should ask um, is that it seems to me that improving reporting, making sure that we are really 
you know, have a full sense of the picture of what's going on is really important. What are some ways that, you know, in particular city council could help to remove some of those barriers, just alternative approaches that might get easier for people to to provide uh, that information? I think it needs to be more proactive uh, approach that city council has to take. Um, I'm in British Columbia right now and the city of Vancouver has saw a stark rise in anti-Asian hate crimes. And although their approach isn't perfect, I think one thing they um, have done is started a hoarding line, which is available in different languages, um, and which has made it really easier for particularly seniors to be able to report any hate crimes that are occurring. And then they're able to spot, you know, if there's one street or one region that a lot of those hate crimes are occurring, they're able to take alternative approaches um, to see what can we do to increase safety of community members in this one street or in this one area. And I think the issue right now is that data isn't being properly recorded. I know um, Irfan Chaudhry from Grant McKeown University tried to do something similar a few years back in like kind of geo-spatializing um, um, hate crime spots and where they're actually happening. But even that data was very minimal. So I think if we can kind of see where there, where there's a need, if it's like, I don't know, happening, I don't even know where the hate crimes are occurring right now, but if we see a lot of them are being reported in like by this, in downtown on Jasper Ave, or so how can we have more community building um, initiatives that happen along that avenue or like where we keep each other safe. So I think something more proactive like that, rather than just setting up a essential hotline where people are like referred to another number, another number, another number, that nobody really kind of feels the need to call and making it super accessible in different languages and having counseling on, on, on hand as people are calling in so they're able to get, get the help that they need. I love that idea of having the built-in uh, counseling with, uh, with the reporting. That makes so much sense. I know that the city of Edmonton had something very similar when it came to the way that women experienced transit. Um, they had this online tool where people could jot down the areas where they felt unsafe on a map um, mm. and then put the details in. Um, so I think the, the, you know, the solution when it comes to hate crimes could, you know, involve something like that, some sort of creative problem solving that we've already seen before, but include things that are, you know, culturally sensitive to our racialized communities. Um, and it's really tough when after reporting, you don't have an idea of what accountability and justice is going to look like. If someone, you know, commits a hate crime and they walk away free and they do it again, that's, there's a very high probability of that happening with our system right now. Even the definition of hate crime gets super vague when it comes to law enforcement. Um, in the case that our community had to deal with, we had community elders literally go to a police station, file a report, and have nothing done about it. Um, and it only took the youth group that I was with about a month of continuously personally having to message the constable 
and making sure that it reached the hate crimes unit. Um, and that shouldn't be the case. It should be that patrol officers have more than a three-hour session with hate crimes and they know what cultural components or have some degree of cultural sensitivity when it comes to hate and what that looks like because not every hate incident or hate crime is the same and when you have that complete lack of training and lack of understanding and awareness it leads to really bad outcomes when it comes to EPS relations with the communities when it comes to levels of reporting within different communities when it comes to just a general distrust of the police and distrust of the system, which is what we're seeing now as a result of gaps in practices and gaps in training. I really appreciate that point. And I think that you're right that for white Canadians, um, it's it can be really hard to to understand what, what hate crime even looks like, um, let alone sort of how it feels. Uh, so that's such a great point around just the work needed to be done because uh, it is training, it is education that's needed uh, for for EPS to to really understand that. Just sort of following through with with some of the desired outcomes as well. So I mean, first of all, yeah, it seems you know just the very basic start is that something is actually done. Like the fact that it's taking time to get to the hate crimes unit is really really upsetting to hear. Um, and then what you know, I've I've spoken to some of you in the past and heard the idea of restorative justice. When I saw all these attacks occurring, I sat down and went through all of the perpetrators of those crimes as they went through the court system. And one thing that is very clear, I know when we think about hate crimes, the picture in our mind is like an angry white man that is that is um, perpetrating these hate crimes. Well, actually, when you look at the recent ones that happened in Edmonton, a lot of the folks are Indigenous. They're part of our unhoused population who are dealing with mental health. Uh, mental health concerns. Um, so I think that makes it really hard for me as a community member to demand that these people be, you know, like prosecuted and put in hate crime, you know, like all of that stuff to happen because there's a clear gap in services that we're providing for the vulnerable. So even if you look at the folks that, have, that, are, that are going through the system right now in court, a lot of them have already been in prison. One of the decisions that came to um, one of the attacks was like, this person will be in prison for 80 days. Uh, but am I really going to be safe when they come back from, from prison in 80 days? Because they've gone there before. And as has time has gone by, um, the type of crimes they have committed have just gotten more, more violent and more severe. So it started from just like petty, like shoplifting to just um, causing nuisance in public to now assault with weapons and just like it just keeps getting worse so for me when i'm looking at it i'm like okay well this is not the solution like putting people in prison over and over again and hoping something good turns out and it turns out to be good human beings isn't gonna work so i think the but i also want to be mindful of the trauma the women um, have faced and the collective trauma that a community goes through when each one of these attacks occurs because I'm not trying to say like you know let's just forget about that and treat these people uh, but I think there is a there is a responsibility on us to I think a take a more proactive approach um, and that comes with funding funding more for affordable housing for mental health services there's an opioid crisis right now in Edmonton, that is that is really amplifying a lot of these mental health concerns. So how do we deal with those 
fund those better so that our community as a whole can be saved. Having said that, there are also some attacks that are very clearly white supremacists. The dude's address is in Windermere, like he's not unhoused. But like it's there is so there are two different, I think, types of cases that are occurring. Um, the one the ones with in, uh, unhoused folks tends to be uh, more common. And I think that's the piece that we're really missing. Yeah, no, that's that's you know, some really great insights around the complexity and a great point too, just around those systemic investments we need to make to ensure that everyone does have the the supports that they need, the housing and supports that they need, and how that that just so directly translates into greater safety for everyone in our community, including those individuals as well. Any any other thoughts on this? I'll, I'll jump into the res, uh, restorative justice um, and, and what uh, that could mean something for different people and quite a number of um, racialized populations of cultural groups or indigenous communities have this restorative justice traditionally as part of their culture. Um, very, um Colonial or before Canada became Canada, indigenous communities have had um, their ways of dealing those uh, wicked uh, social uh, disorders, and it has been through restorative justice. So, in terms of of saying that we will we will be putting in restorative justice here, then then how are we taking? into the cultural nuances into that. What does that mean for different cultural backgrounds? The impacted communities, how have they been doing this? What are some of the things that they done? My worry is that that conversation is not happening. And if that conversation is not happening, then I wonder the impact and the outcomes that the restorative justice will, uh, will make. Is it going to be um, a prescribed one, which is, uh, this is best practice, or it's going to be something that uh, that needs to be done with the communities. The second piece is uh, about the issue of mental health. Like, yes, there's quite a number of of um, factors that are in play when it comes to the incidences of hate um, and, and and the conditions of our communities when it comes to mental health, but our policing system, our justice system doesn't seem uh, to be agile enough to accommodate that and, and, and see how to address that. And I'll give an example here that there was somebody who wrote um, a hate uh, slur to, uh, to our organization and um, used the strong language through our website. So when we when we received, we reported that. And in itself, I really liked that I went through the process because of I know how it works now. <laughs> so when I reported that EPS was asking me um, to put down in an email and then send it to, like write an incident report. And in my head, I'm thinking, what if I don't write? How will somebody like that now report this incident? Um, so the good thing is that they were able to find the person and they were able to identify the person as somebody who has mental health conditions. 
So how are we going to deal with this? Like we, we is, is EBS prepared to be agile and response to this? Or if there is any institution that goes to a very prescribed system or step-by-step, it is the army and the police. And we have them responsible to respond to the crisis now. So that is that is the challenge. So how is it agile to respond to the needs when you have the institutions that are the most rigid ones when it comes to how they do it? Which was informed in a way that that's how they are trained. I won't blame them for that. But they are not trained to be agile in response to this kind of stuff. And how do we accommodate that? Yeah, and also don't have the the training and tools to be agile, even even if they wanted to, right? So, yeah, yeah I mean that I think that really speaks to some of the the topics that have come up through the community safety and wellness task force. Um, you know, just the need to have uh, di- different resources to deal with these um, situations, uh, and, and of course, too, sort of going back to I, I really appreciated your points around the need for, you know, even just restorative justice, it doesn't mean one thing uh, for everyone, uh, that it does need to be very nuanced, uh, depending on the, on the parties. And, you know, something that I think was really powerful coming out of the, uh, the task force was the need to be empowering communities to run their own uh, programs, to, to have some of that uh, process taken taken away from from the existing system and structures, and and actually empower the communities to set up the processes that make sense for them. So I think it's I think it's really hopeful that that we're maybe moving in that direction, and and you know something that that I I think is a, a great a great way to go. I have found myself sort of struggling through the campaign process. You know when when incidents are occurring, wanting to to acknowledge and, and make statements condemning those actions, but at the same time feeling that inevitably, especially as a, as a candidate, not, not a counselor, it falls into, you know, our hopes and prayers kind of uh, statements. Um, so I, I'd really welcome your thoughts around, you know, what's, what's meaningful, um, you know, in, in the moment from, from community leaders, what, what do you wanna hear from politicians sort of in the moment of those incidents happening? And then what do you actually want them to do sort of strategically um, in the long run to, to address that? Can I say not a pepper spray? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for me, I would want my, uh, my leaders to, in the most strongest language, condemn it. And then also um, think through some of the most strongest forms of actions that they can take that don't necessarily have to be very much through just the lens of security and prosecution. Um, so if I am city council, the first thing I'm going, I would be mandating is having every single one of the branch um, look at how are we going to address hate crimes and the growing violence in in city of Edmonton. So like you know, hate crimes isn't just the responsibility of EPS or the EDI division um, of EPS. It also you know goes into transit and urban planning and how we do affordable housing. So like I think every branch manager and every sort of person in position should be drafting up, you know, briefing notes of whatever needs to be done to be like, okay, this is what I can do with the power that I have within city administration. So if I'm thinking through transit systems, what am I going, what am I going to do to make sure there is um, 
consistent transit in, in these areas? Or what am I going to do to make sure there's enough lighting on transit stations so women feel more safer later at night when we know a lot of these hate crimes occur? So just kind of like thinking through what can I do in my power that I have to make this city safer? So yeah, that's my biggest thing I would do is like not just make this fall into the EDI division, but across the, across the city administration. Yeah. And even in the moment, if we're talking about when these attacks occur, what I found in our situation is that we kind of had like two types of politicians basically showing up. And one was strongly condemning the acts that occurred, trying to give us some sort of solutions, trying to say like, this is what the possibility is. But then we had another where it was, yeah, this sucks that this happened. Let's take a quick picture and post it on social media. And then the action stops. Um, and that's where we really struggled with our, not even just our feelings around politicians, but even our trust around politicians is, do we even want you here now? Like, is there even a point of you being here? Or is it just, especially when it's like election season, it's, is it a picture or is it legislation? Is it a picture or is it actual follow through? Is it you know, a tweet or is it, you know, training and things like that. That's what we really struggled with, especially being so young and having to deal with that um, so quickly is it, it was very disillusioning to see. Yeah, I think uh, two things. If I if 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 someone is running as a mayor today and goes and knocks the doors of those girls who have been attacked, asking their support. It's an embarrassment if you have not done that when they have been attacked. So as you go and knock the door when you need a vote, knock the door when they are attacked and say that, how are you doing? I'm sorry, what happened? That's one thing. The second thing is um, there was a charge that was banned and we have seen what happened, that leaders dropped whatever they were doing and they went there. That is the type of things that we need to see when Gudwala is attacked. That's the type of things that we need to see when somebody walks, a white supremacist walks into Al-Rashid Mosque wanting to harm people. The leader that I want is a leader that is a leader for everyone. And that is being touched when anyone is touched, regardless of race, religion, belief, and uh, sexual orientation. So um, those are some of the things that we need people pay attention to, people look into. Um, yeah, so I'll just conclude and say that it would be an embarrassment if you go and knock the door of that lady that was attacked once that you have never picked the phone or call or knock the door and then you're now asking their vote. It's really tricky with, you know, election season right now. I've, I've felt like I've personally become very cynical when things like this happen. Because it's like, what is what action are we even going to see? Because right now we're we're not seeing any um, we're not seeing any justice or accountability, um, and from politicians and from community leaders. I want people who have the proven track record of being there for the community, um, not just showing up when things happen, but they have constant communication with people in the community. Um, they're aware of what the experiences are like. And when it comes to 
questions on affordability and housing and mental health supports, while they may seem like these big issues, all of it manifests on a local level. We feel all of it locally and our diversity manifests on a local level. So it's really important for, you know, neighborhood and community leaders to acknowledge how to really find the solutions to these. Um, and that really takes more of a holistic approach because cities are these big complicated spaces. They aren't really black and white. Um, and every single neighborhood is different. Every community is different. So, you know, I've seen people when hate crimes happen be like, oh, these people should go straight to jail. Um, but, you know, going back to that restorative justice piece, what happens when they come out of jail? What happens when they feel like they're being isolated from society and they aren't being reintegrated into it? Um, and their trauma and their mental health is not being addressed, um, it will just lead to more violent attacks. Such incredible insights. I, I think that type of thinking is so important, uh, looking at that, that holistic view um, and, and so well said, thank you. Uh, and I, I really appreciate the points too, just around some of the, the cynicism that can come out of, uh, out of politics. And I'm wondering, about accountability mechanisms uh, for, you know, for city council in particular. And, you know, I know the Anti-Racism Advisory Committee um, has, has played a really big role in recent years, but wondering if there, there's a stronger mechanism uh, to hold politicians to account for, for what they're sort of saying publicly, what they're promising publicly, and then the actual action that, that flows from that. And, and again, in a way that it doesn't put it on the communities on volunteers uh, to track that because it can be so difficult to, you know, compile someone's voting record or, um, you know, even follow a report through the various committees at city council. I've been uh, somebody who has been advocating for anti-racism uh, councils uh, over the past couple of years, but I have a shift in my thinking now, and I, I don't, I don't feel like anti-racism councils is the way to go anymore. Um, given that 2020, uh, what we have seen and 2021 in terms of these incidents, I feel like anti-racism or race and race relations should be at the top of the agenda and the committee for that should be the city council. I don't think that we need to create a council that doesn't have a public mandate, doesn't have a legislative authority, doesn't have ability to change the laws, the finances, the mechanics that will make the shift will be responsible. I feel it should be the city council's mandate. Um, Anti-racism committees, I don't think is the way to go anymore. I think it is a way to divert responsibilities. I think it is kind of like ticking a box and and provide saying that we have we have established this, we have done this. It goes part of the report and part of the speaking points. In a very good example, city of Edmonton has 
at the Racism Council, and they have allocated resources, 300,000. Edmonton Community Foundation allocated anti-racism initiatives, 1 million. It's a foundation. City of Edmonton allocated 300,000 under this committee. I just don't feel that it is the way to go. And I think it is just creating um, speaking points and boxes to take. Oh, yeah, that's that really resonates. Uh, and this idea of the, the committee's sort of diverting responsibility, but without giving them authority or resources to actually make the change. Um, so that's that's such an exciting shift in thinking for me that that, that council's mandate is to deal with uh, race and race relations. Thank you. That's that's really inspiring. Um, I know we're coming up on time, so just wanted to to open up if if anybody had some comments that they wanted to make um, or any any last thoughts before we wrap up. Yeah, I just wanted to add that city council has to be open to hearing these experiences. It doesn't matter if you have a report come to them or you you know tell them about these different experiences if they aren't open to being flexible and creating change because that's where we see like a bump in the road or um, where we can see progress really stop right in its tracks. You have all these people on maybe, you know, subcommittees or advisory boards doing this work, wanting to come to council and tell them about what's happening. And then you know, maybe council isn't completely informed on these experiences and what's been happening. So they have a very narrow view. Um, and then so the work just completely stops in its tracks. And then you get that pushback from council saying that, oh, this isn't a priority. This isn't as important for us to focus on. Yeah. As election time comes, I think for those of us that are part of these um, diverse communities that have had experiences with hate, hate crimes and hate incidents, it really comes down to looking at your candidates and seeing who is going to be the role model or the spokesperson or the candidate or the counselor for your community. Who is going to take your concerns seriously and who is going to reflect your community as best as it can? Um, if you're coming from a diverse community, you need to understand the different needs and nuances to every aspect of life in that community. Um, as Heike said, like having the affordable housing, having the transit, not even for the downtown core, as people think that these issues only apply to, it applies to every ward in our city. Um, and it can be the smallest things that will show you that someone's ready to represent you, whether that's seeing that an area has a predominantly like Punjabi type of population, having Punjabi signs to help reach out to that community, seeing that your city is having a rash of hate incidents and hate crimes against Muslim women. What are you going to do about that? And are you talking about it? Were you talking about it in your career? Do you talk about it at the doors? Do you talk about it whenever it is applicable and as much as you can. And I think that's where the power of the voter comes in is the city council needs to hold themselves electable, but let's make sure that those members of council will be uh, held accountable because we're not 
anyone's babysitter. They should be able to do their own accountability and they should be able to do their own work. But let's make sure that those people are actually capable of doing that. Um, I just want to add, I know throughout this podcast, we really talked about this idea of more training and for like EPS, but like similarly to Sharif, I think I've come to the point where I'm like, no amount of anti-racism training is going to fix it. So like, I cannot teach you in a Zoom webinar on how to fix systems because that's not how it works. I think there needs to be a fundamental shift in how, in how we approach community safety and the and the report that came out from the task force, I think lays a really good foundation for that. So what I'm looking for at the next council is which one of my counselors are actually looking to really, I think, shift that perspective and really take that report head on and implement it. The thing that I'm constantly concerned about going back to 2020 is we had one of the largest protests um, in Edmonton for Black Lives Matter. And then when it came to the budget of the police, it did not get debated. It was, it just got passed through with very, like with like the similar approaches, nothing really changed. And I know that it's in the bylaws where like, you know, that budget item never really gets changed, never really gets debated. It's just supposed to go through to make it less controversial or whatever. But I think it's about time that we start taking, looking at that because it's one of the biggest budget items on our city, um, in our city. So why are we not talking about it when we've had so many community members mobilize and tell you that that is what is needed to change and nothing happened. And I think that's where cynicism and kind of like apathy from the community also comes from. It's like, we did everything we could and yet this is where we are again, a year later. So I think it's more about that fundamental shift in, in people's perspectives. Well, for me, these types of conversations are a huge part of making that shift uh, for myself and, and hopefully others listening. So thank you all so much uh, for your time and, and your insights and expertise. It's so valuable. And, uh, and I truly appreciate you taking the time. This episode of Stronger, Smarter Together was produced by Bryn Bratton-Wall and edited by Ben Sear. Music is by Chloe Albert and artwork by Joanne Pierce. Be sure to check out annstevenson.ca for more information on how we can build our communities stronger, smarter, together.